Good morning, church. What a joy to be here with you and to sing all praise and glory to our great God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. I bring you warm greetings from your sister church, Belcroft Bible Church, just across the way over in Bowie, Maryland. I am honored and grateful to be with you. I literally just stepped out of our pulpit. We, we reordered our service this morning so I could be over here and worship with you, and it was a joy for us to do that because we love you. We stand in solidarity with you on, on every level. We are thankful for this church. We have been praying for you for many years, but most specifically over these last years of struggle. There, there you are, Susan. I was hoping I would get to see you. Lord bless you, sister. We have been praying for you guys intently. I pray for you every week. Our church prays for you all the time. And when I shared with our body our desire to readjust the order of service so that I could be here to minister to you, everyone was excited to play a part in that And because we love you and we are thankful for you. I don't know how many of you know this or not, but when I was candidating, um, aka ready to uh, leave Gabe, not because I wanted to, but because... I had to because the Lord was prodding me to leave Grace Community Church and get out in ministry after being the children's pastor there. Uh, When we were candidating all over the East Coast, being from the East Coast, both my wife and I wanted to come back here. We didn't know where we would go. And as we were looking all over the place, a church in Bowie, Maryland came across our screen. And there was one thing about that church that really enticed me. Matter of fact, it hooked me. And it was this, its proximity to Hope Bible Church. Honestly, that's what did it. That we, were, we were actually, we almost went to Illinois, we almost went to Alabama, we almost went to New Hampshire. There was like all these places. And it was like, nope, I can go there. I can be close to Tom Leake. I can be close to George Lawson. I can be close to Paul Shirley. I need to be close to good guys. I need help. I knew I was going to need help. I knew I was going to need wisdom. And I, I, I never personally had met Tom but I'd heard all about him. I had watched uh, his ministry from afar, knew, you know, obviously knew he was the oldest uh, master's seminary grad in this area, and I knew I could learn a lot from him. So in many ways, I came here, and uh, many of you probably don't know this, but I kind of sunk my teeth into Tom and asked him to help me, and he did, because our church is a revitalization They were without a pastor four years before I came, so that meant there were lots of issues that we had to deal with that we're still dealing with by God's grace. And those first few years, Tom was massive in helping me thread the needle of a lot of issues that are hard to deal with when you're dealing with problems like that. But his wisdom was uh, amazing, and I don't think I would be where I am or our church would be where it is without the help and love and mercy and kindness of Tom Leake. And then he, he went even so far as to allow me to come and minister to you guys many times in the Institute and on the Gamma Board and all things I don't deserve but am grateful for. And now the privilege to stand in the pulpit that he preached in is in some ways overwhelming. My heart was joy, and I'm thankful for that, and I pray your heart uh, resonates with that as well. Well, if you're not already there, please turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which will serve as our text for exposition this morning. In light of these uncertain times and these ever-changing circumstances in which we live, I wanted to encourage us with the sovereign providence and the cosmic constancy of God in and over every square inch of the believer's life. 
You follow along silently now as I read. I'll read verses 28 through 30 for context. You follow along silently now as I read aloud. Hear the word of the Lord. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Amen. I know without any doubt, and I have no hesitation, that you are well taught here. So I will not give a ton of background, but I need to give some. So allow me to quickly remind all of us what Paul is doing here. Paul writes this letter to these believers in Rome that they might be strengthened, strengthened by and deeply rooted in the gospel, the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul seeks to help these believers in better understanding in and rejoicing in the gospel by first helping them see man's need for the righteousness of God. This is his point in chapters 1, 2, and the beginning part of chapter 3. You can summarize that really that whole first section of Romans 1 to 3 in one word. It's the one word, condemnation. Then after showing man's desperate need, Paul explains how God does what only God can do. He brings man the righteousness that he demands God sovereignly delivers. Thus, chapters 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5 can be summarized in the one word, justification. Justification, which is undeniably the gracious declaration and, and sovereign provision of God's righteousness. The next section, chapters 6 to 8, is where Paul begins to delineate the glorious impact and transformation of the gospel the, transform, the transformative power of the gospel in the life and upon the life and in the life and through the life of every single believer. What is that transformative power? What is that amazing transformation that takes place? Well, it frees the believer from sin, and it progressively prepares him for future glory. That's what the gospel does. That's the section, chapter 6 to 8 that you could summarize in one word, sanctification, which in every way is not the declaration of God's righteousness, that's justification. It is the demonstration of God's righteousness, that is sanctification. Now, it is, it is in this latter part that we just referenced, this section, chapters 6 to 8, where we find our verse for exposition this morning. Paul has been declaring in chapters 6 to 8 the glorious freedom the gospel brings to the believer so that he can now live godly, joyfully, and confidently 
for the Lord, despite the ongoing suffering in this world, and pay attention, His ongoing struggle with the flesh. In this section, Paul is teaching that through the gospel, the believer has freedom to live by faith with great hope while fighting with the flesh. Chapter 6, the believer has been set free from the slavery of sin. Chapter 7, the believer has been set free from the condemnation of the law. And chapter 8, the believer has been set free by the Spirit from living in the flesh. Thus, Paul says, believers do not fear. Living by the flesh only brings fear, but living by the Spirit, it brings life, peace, and hope. It is in this glorious train of thought regarding the, be- the believer's sure and certain hope of future glory that we find our text this morning. This verse is above all things a promise, a promise from God for all believers regarding the certainty of their future glory. Despite the reality of their present suffering, their ongoing pain, and no doubt looming death. This verse is God's guarantee that what He started through the gospel, He will sovereignly complete by the gospel. This verse is God's promise of His all-encompassing providence in purifying and perfecting His children, no matter the confusion, no matter the crisis, no matter the chaos they might face. This is a promise when rightfully understood and embraced that will bring hope, assurance, security, stability, and comfort for all believers no matter what. Therefore, I want us to grapple, I want us to grapple with four, four aspects of this promise that we might deeply consider and constantly rejoice in God's sovereign providence in and over every single inch of our life for His glory and our good. Here are four words, four words to help you track with me through this verse. Number one, clarity. Clarity. We're going to see the clarity of the promise. And then number two, recipients. Recipients. We're going to see the recipients of the promise. Number three, scope. Scope. We're going to look at the scope of the promise. And then we'll finish out where the verse finishes out with certainty. We'll see the certainty of the promise. The first aspect we must consider is the clarity of the promise. Verse 28 begins, and we know. Stop right there. You kind of get a feel for how this is going to go, okay? And we know. Before we go any further into the promise, we must not miss what Paul is saying here as it brings out the clarity, the certainty, the assurance, and hope this promise delivers to the believer's life. Don't miss it. Paul is not saying, we think, we hope, we pray, we desire, but we're not sure. Paul is not saying we want even the pain of our lives to be for our good, but we don't know if that will or can happen. That is not what the apostle the Apostle Paul declares, Paul is speaking with absolute 
clarity and without any ambiguity when he says, and we know. The Greek word used here for to know speaks of a well-known fact generally accepted and understood by all. So Paul is reminding them of a truth they should already understand when he says, we know. The phrase or Greek construction of we know is used seven times in Romans, and each time it speaks of some important and foundational fact that should be used to anchor one's soul and guard one's mind in sound doctrine. Watch this. In Romans 2.2, Paul says, we know that God rightly brings judgment on all sinners. Pretty important fact you should know. In Romans 3.19, we know that God's law ends all individual excuses and holds everyone in judgment and accountable before Yahweh's holy will. In Romans 6.6, it says, we know that the flesh of all believers has been crucified with Christ. And in Romans 6.9, we know that all believers have been raised with Christ. So we, so we must all also know in Romans 6, 11, where it says we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. These are massive truths we must know and that must guard and guide our lives. Romans 7, 14 says we know that the law is spiritual, meaning it reflects God's character, but the believer is, is still in the struggle of the flesh, meaning this reality of our ongoing battle with our sin. Romans 8.22 says, and we know that the whole creation and all believers still suffer under the temporal pain and consequences of sin, but we eagerly hope for the future redemption. And then Paul culminates his we know statements here in Romans 8.28. When he says, we know with all clarity and all confidence that no matter what happens to us, God is working and will never stop working to bring about our ultimate good, and He will use everything, everything in our lives to fulfill His eternal purpose for us. Now listen, Paul is saying our hope, our help, and our strength in sadness, suffering, and sickness, pay attention, our hope, our help, our strength in sadness, suffering, and sickness does not come from what I don't know, but it's driven by what I do know to be true. This phrase is used to demonstrate clarity in thinking and further to instill confidence in living as one walks by faith according to what he knows to be true about the Lord. The Apostle John does the same exact thing in 1 John. Listen, almost 40 times the Apostle John uses this same construction in 1 John. And we know what 1 John is all about. It's a letter to instill confidence and assurance and certainty dealing with one's assurance of salvation, knowing whether or not you're a true believer. Dear loved ones, one of the biggest struggles for us is that we live our lives consumed with what we don't know instead of being comforted by and committed to what we do know about God. Worry 
Anxiety, sinful fear are almost always driven by what you don't know or what you can't control. Just a few verses before in verse 26, Paul says, we don't know. And now here he says, we do know. In so many ways, this is a great summary of our life in Christ while living in this fallen and wicked world, is it not? Every day we must face the reality that we don't know what will happen. And yet, every day we live our lives with confidence and with peace because we know that God is sovereignly at work for my good through everything that happens. We do not know what is around the bend, but we do know where it all will end. Paul is clear, and we understand this, that we do not know the intermediate, but we do know the ultimate. And it is the clarity of the ultimate that must be my focus while I walk through the confusion of the intermediate. This is how we live with God-centered confidence while living in a world enslaved with man-centered fear. We do not know what tomorrow will bring but we do know who controls everything about tomorrow. Listen, where did the courage for David come from to face Goliath and defend the glory of God when no one else would? He focused on what he knew was true about God, 1 Samuel 17, 37. Where did the life-transforming hope come from for Jeremiah when all seemed lost as he suffered through the violent horrors of the fall of Jerusalem? He remembered the Lord, and he focused on what he knew to be true about God. Lamentations 3, 21 to 25. How does Christ, our Lord, endure the shame, the suffering, and the scoffing rude when he bore our sins in his body on the tree? Being reviled, mocked, ridiculed, and yet he went silently and faithfully before his shears like a lamb to the slaughter. How? How was he able to do that? Because as 1 Peter 2 says so clearly, he entrusted himself fully and joyfully to his sovereign Father who judges justly. He focused on what he knew to be true about his God, about his Father. This was how Paul lived every day of his life. And this is exactly how we must live every day of our lives. Despite the uncertainties that clearly are all around us, it is not what Paul, is that not what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12 when speaking of the suffering he receives for being a Christian and preaching the gospel, and I quote, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul says, my life and my ministry are safe in the sovereign hand of God, no matter what it might look like. What opportunities, what opportunities you have, Hope Bible Church, what opportunities we have to bring clarity to the confusion of our times. We live in some of the most uncertain times by the way of the world's perspective. What clarity as believers we can bring in our workplaces, in our families, in our schools, in our communities, when everybody is scared to death about whatever it is that's coming, and we have the confidence of knowing that our sovereign Lord is at work no matter what. What a beacon of light and hope 
and truth we can and must have in these days. What, pri- what priority we have to shine as gospel lights of hope as we declare the gospel to a world that is enslaved in despair and darkness and fear. We have seen the clarity of the promise. Now let's look at the recipients of the promise. The next phrase here in verse 28 says, and we know that for those who love God. Stop right there. Paul now moves from the certainty of the promise to the benefactors of the promise when he says that this promise is only for those who love God. Here he establishes with undeniable clarity the limiting factor on this cosmic promise. Despite what some may say and think, the Bible does not say that God works everything out for the good of all people. This verse does not speak in some sort of Pollyannish rhetoric and so give false hope to all men. The idea that somehow everything will all work out in the end for the good of everyone is a lie no one, nowhere found in Scripture. As a matter of fact, the opposite is true, that God actually works against those who hate Him. James chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter 5, 5 say clearly that God actually opposes, meaning He proactively pushes away the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Psalm 37, 28 says that the saints are preserved by God, but the wicked will be cut off. Psalm 1 gives a very clear declaration of that. And here in Romans 1.18, Paul says that God is pouring out His wrath, pouring out His wrath on the ungodliness of men, and He's storing up His wrath to be unleashed on the day of judgment upon all unbelievers, Romans 2.5. If you study this out through Scripture, what Paul says here in Romans 2 is that everything will actually work toward the ultimate condemnation and eternal judgment of unbelievers. Hence why he says all unbelievers are storing up wrath that grows exponentially every day, like a dam that fills up beyond its capacity and bursts with devastating destruction. So every single day works against the unbeliever, filling up the dam of his own damnation that will cover him in eternal torment as Revelation 20 verses 12 to 15 depict soberly. However, not so. Not so for the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. For as the glorious promise declares, God is sovereignly at work so that everything that comes into his life will bring about the believer's ultimate good. Now the phrase Paul uses here, for those who love God, is a clear Maybe the clearest description of the true believer. Paul is not speaking in situational cause and effect language, meaning in every situation that you are loving God, you can be sure that God will use that situation for your good. Not at all. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying this massive and never-ending promise is for every true believer, which are always the ones who love God. Loving God always sums up the basic inner conviction and characteristic of all true Christians, but only Christians. Unbelievers are haters of God, Romans 1.30, who are at enmity with God, Romans 8.7. 
But believers have no greater joy, desire, or delight in life than serving, worshiping, and living for God in light of His awesome saving grace. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that it is the love of God that compels us to love Him with every ounce of our being. The gospel of God changes our hearts from hating God to loving God, as Paul says in Romans 5.5, as the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Thus, the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is what? Love. Thus, we strive to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. This is exactly what God demands, and this is exactly what the new hearts of the believer can help but do. Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. The Bible is clear. From the beginning to the end, there are only two types of people in this world, believers and unbelievers meaning those who love God and those who hate God. Deuteronomy 7, 9 to 10 says it so clearly, and I quote, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His co- commandments to a thousand generations. And He repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face, unquote. So the question that comes up here is, are you one who loves God? As great as this promise is, it is only for those who love God. Do you love God? I did not ask if you believe in God. As one preacher said, you can be a theist and not a Christian. We can believe in God and not be a Christian. James chapter 2 19 is clear that even demons believe in God. Matthew 7, 21 to 23 says, there will be many people who will believe in God with a superficial faith, and so they will go to hell. I am so glad, Paul says here, that this promise is for those who love God, for that helps us drive even further what it means to truly believe in God. It was Jesus himself that said, whoever keeps my commandments is the one who loves me, John 14, 21. Listen, true belief in God is never silent nor secretive, but life-changing. We're not talking about perfect love, for no such thing exists until heaven, but we are talking about an active, ongoing love that is being perfected. True love for God is driven by and overwhelmed with joy for the undeserved forgiveness received by grace alone through faith alone. Remember the sinful woman in Luke 7, 47, who demonstrated great love for Christ because she had, what, been forgiven greatly by Christ. Love for God manifests itself in obedience to God's will in His Word, John 14, 21. Real love for God spills over to real love for other brothers and sisters. 1 John 3, 14 and 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Real love for God manifests in a hunger and thirst for greater knowledge and communion with God. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Psalm 73, 25. Real love for God shows itself in real love for His Word. How many times in Psalm 119? Oh, how I love your law. Love for God shows itself in hatred for sin and hatred for the things of this world, 1 John 2, 15 and 17. 
Do you love Him? Do you love Him? Psalm 1611, I love it. David says, my greatest pleasure and delight is found in you, O Lord. Paul says, Philippians 3, 12 to 14, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters other than knowing the Lord. The Word of God is clear that we only love God because He first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. Dear loved ones, I ask you, have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone? Have you turned away from yourself, from your dreams, from your wishes and your wants? Have you, as Jesus Christ Himself said in Luke 14, 33, have you renounced all? Because unless you have renounced all, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Have you turned away from this world, turned away from your wants, turned away from the wishes of your family, whoever, and turned to Christ alone as the only answer, the only hope, the only help amidst God's wrath coming upon you because of sin? I pray you have, because if you have, it's those that understand the love of God and who are filled with love for God. Because once you have been overwhelmed by the grace of God, you cannot stop it. It is a wellspring that just keeps bubbling over, over and over again, because the gospel never gets old. The, the gospel never can be depleted. You will never exhaust the glory of the gospel. And the gospel is the funnel of God's love into our hearts. It is amazing. It is encouraging. And I pray you understand that. I pray that you are one of these who loves God. We have seen the clarity and the recipients of the promise. Now let's, let's look at the scope. Let's look at the scope of the promise. Here in this next phrase, Paul brings out the simplicity and profundity of this most glorious promise. He says, and I quote, all things work together for good. Obviously, it is God that is sovereignly working here, not the lifeless inanimate objects and events of, quote, all things. As we see in, in a moment, it is God, it is God's purpose that drives everything here. Thus, it is God that drives everything. It is God who calls. It is God who justifies. It is God who sanctifies. It is God who ultimately glorifies. As Paul will say, it is God who is for us. It is God who did not spare His own Son, but sent Him up for us all. It is God who poured out His love for us while we were yet sinners. It is God who never leaves nor forsakes His own. Thus, nothing can separate the believer from God. Now, let's be clear by what Paul means by all things. And I went through 10 years of Bible college and seminary to learn this, so this is worth a lot of money. Get ready. A lot of Hebrew and Greek went into this. When Paul says all things, he means all things. Wow. Took me 10 years to learn that. All things. The scope of this promise for the believer is utterly, absolutely, and fully comprehensive, exhaustive, and inclusive. Everything in your life is under the sovereign providence and loving guidance of your caring Lord to bring about His greatest good. Do not miss it. It is obvious, please don't miss this, it is obvious that God would work all the upright things in your life for the believer's good. So that is never really the issue, is it? God will use His perfect Word to perfect you. 
He will use his eternal wisdom to guide you. He will use his precious church to equip you. He will use his glorious gospel to rescue you. And he will use his daily sustaining grace to keep you along life's mundane path by blessing you with all of the common grace that we so often take for granted. And therefore, he will work everything out together for your good. That's obvious. That's undeniable. However, however, the shocking truth here is that God uses all the sick, bad, evil, wrong, ugly, bitter, hurtful, harmful, horrific, and sinful things that come into your life and through your life to bring about His ultimate good for your life. That is the massive and mysterious scope of this serious promise. The context is clear. Paul is talking about suffering, trials, persecution, pain, and yes, even death that comes upon all believers through living in and being purified as we traverse this sin-sick, fallen world. Romans 8, 17 through the rest of the chapter is all about God's work in the believer's life despite the believer's suffering. The all-encompassing nature of this promise is only further made clear in Romans 8, 32 to 39. Ask yourself, why is it that nothing can separate the believer from the love of God? Because everything in the believer's life is under the sovereign providence of God for the believer's good. Notice the Greek word, works together. In the Greek, this word is where we get our word synergistic from. John MacArthur is helpful here. He says it carries the idea of of bringing or working together of various elements to produce an effect greater than or often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. He gives a helpful example of how this reality can be seen in common table salt. Common table salt is composed of two poisons, one sodium, the other chlorine. But when they come together, they bring about the good preservative and additive we know to be salt. That is what Paul mentioned earlier in Romans 5 when he said, we rejoice in our sufferings, not because suffering by itself is good, but suffering in the hand of a loving, sovereign God always works, always works to our good as the gift of that misery works toward my maturation in Christ-likeness. Therefore, we need to be clear here on what, quote-unquote, good Paul is talking about. Let's be honest. One of the biggest problems we face in this world is living according to our understanding and not God's. Sadly, we live far too often by Proverbs 3, 5 in the antithesis Instead of trusting in the Lord with all, with, with all our might, we have a propensity to lean on our own understanding. Thus, your definition of good and God's definition of good are likely at odds with one another. More than likely, you need to regularly redefine your understanding of good according to God's Word. This good is our ultimate eternal glorification, which is the final consummation and culmination of our salvation. 
This good is the complete transformation of our lowly bodies into the glorious image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. This good is the redemption of our bodies in finally freeing us from the presence of sin, Romans 8.23. Thus, Paul is saying what he already said in Romans 8.18, that our present suffering cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed that God is working out in our lives through all these things. Thus, this good is not, pay attention, it is not personal comfort. This good is not personal comfort, but conformity to Christ. This good is not circumstantial happiness, but Christ-centered holiness. This was the point that James makes when he says, count it all joy because trials are fun and feel good? Absolutely not. But because these tribulations are like, providentially con- like a providentially controlled oven, sovereignly set at just the right temperature for your life where God himself, the master baker, will place you in that oven and burn away from your life all that's not of Christ. And that is one of the most blessed things he can ever do. Make us like Christ. Amazing how Paul, you know this letter of Romans, how how Paul was actually hindered hindered from going to Rome because of pain and problems and suffering. But those trials in his life actually served as the impetus that brought about this amazing letter of Romans. David went through many trials when he was hunted like a a wild animal by Saul through the wilderness for, for many years. He had to live in caves like a wild beast And yet he was the anointed of God, the king of Israel. However, those difficult years not only prepared David for his kingship, but they actually brought about some of the most beloved psalms we cherish today. Think about how God worked through all the evil in Joseph's life to bring both temporal good for him and his family and the whole world but ultimately the eternal good of preparing the way for Christ who would one day come. What about Ruth and Esther? What about the cross? The cross, where God uses the evil actions of ignorant rulers to fulfill His greatest good for sinners. Acts 4, 24 to 26. I don't know if you've ever taken a watch apart and looked an old watch, not a digital watch, but one that has arms and gears. And you ever looked at the arms on a watch and the way it works? It's quite fascinating, especially if you look at it internally while it's working. One arm is going backwards and another arm is going forwards. And it's very interesting when you can, how does that work, right? I'll tell you how it works. There's one little piece of metal that's the most important part of the whole watch. It's called the main spring, and it's in the middle, and it actually holds the two arms together, the one that's going backwards and the one that's going forwards. And dear loved ones, in, so, in every aspect of our life, God Himself is our main spring. As things in our lives look like they're going backwards, it looks like I'm going backwards. This isn't working. This is a setback. This isn't, this isn't good. All the while, God's got His hand on that which does not look good and His hand on that which is good, and He's pulling it all together so that no matter what happens, it's always moving you in the right direction. This glorious promise. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said, in all of Scripture, this one verse right here stands before us, the most glorious truth in all the Bible. It is amazing. And how desperately we not only need to know this, but we need to live it. As a pastor, it almost, it confronts me all the time, right? As a believer, as a pastor, I'm no different than you on so many levels. It confronts my heart how grumbling we can be. Confronts my heart how often the church is not marked by never-ending joy, but sometimes it seems like never-ending complaining. How sad is that? What kind of what kind of what kind of lampshade does that put over the gospel light? We should be never ending in gratitude. And aren't we commanded? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And that's not the power of positive thinking at all, because that's a joke. This is the power of the gospel in our lives, no matter what happens, COVID, cancer, death, anything. And those things are real, and those things are hard, and I don't deny them. Yet, when compared to the eternal glory of Christ, is there any comparison? None. None. Now we come to the last part of the verse, the certainty, the certainty of the promise. In this final section of this verse, Paul brings it all home now when he says, this promise is for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here we see the marvelous guarantee that stands behind and underneath this glorious promise. What Paul says here brings certainty, confidence, and abiding conviction no matter how confusing times might be. These words serve as an, as an anchor that holds this promise steady in the heart of every believer, no matter the storm that might blow through his life. These words bring security, surety, and stability as they point to, here it is, the eternal plan of God that both anchors and propels this promise with absolute inevitability. What Paul says here is God's cosmic guarantee that will bring complete comfort, and we need to get it. We need to get this, church. Paul says that this promise is tethered to, driven by, and rooted in two very important and never-changing truths about God and His work. First, notice, the certainty of the promise is grounded in God's sovereign, effectual calling of the believer. This promise is for those who are called by God. In the Bible, there is the general calling of God. That is the universal invitation to assemble that, that can be submitted to or rejected by man. This general calling is what Jesus referred to in Matthew twenty-two fourteen when He said, many are called, but few are chosen. However, this is not how Paul is using, quote-unquote, called here. He is not using it in a, in a general invitation that is external, but he's using it as a sovereign internal working of God on the heart of man, whereby man follows God. Thus, this is a specific call that draws the believer to follow Christ. This is the call that awakens the soul. It opens the eye. It moves the life to repent and believe. 
This is the powerful, always effective call that is the internal working of God on the heart and life of a man God has chosen to save. This effectual calling always works, always works, so that everyone who hears this call answers in the affirmative. Like Lazarus, who came out of the tomb when Christ called his name, so this calling Paul speaks of here in the life of the believer always brings, always, don't miss it, always brings its desired end. You can see this in verse 30, where those God had predetermined to save are the ones he effectually calls. Therefore, as Paul will say in Romans eleven twenty nine, the calling of God is irrevocable, meaning it's unchangeable and unstoppable. Hence, Paul's confidence in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, when he says, he who calls you is faithful, and so he will surely do it. Thus, you can see how this promise is guaranteed because it does not rest on the work of man, but on the goodness of God. This promise does not rest on what I do, but on what God has already done. This does not mean we don't have work to do in obeying the Lord by actively submitting to His Word. We do. We're commanded to, and we must. But that reality of submission to the Scripture is actually the divine means given by God, whereby He, has, he sovereignly accomplishes His perfect will in our lives. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation, knowing that God is working it all out. However, the certainty of the promise gets even better. The guarantee is even greater than God's effectual calling in my life because God's call is tethered to and flows out of, number two, God's eternal decree. This is Paul's point when he says, called according to God's purpose. This is massive as it roots my life in Christ to the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. Let that sink in for a moment. Everything in this verse is not really about you. Did you hear that? Everything in this verse is not really about the believer. As encouraging as this promise is in what it brings to our lives, it's really not about us, but it's really all about God and His cosmic purpose for which we get to be a part of undeserved as that is. Listen, this purpose is exactly what Paul means when he speaks in Ephesians 1.11 about how God is working everything out after the counsel of His own will. This all speaks of God's eternal, unconditional, unstoppable, and exhaustive decree. You can see this multifaceted, glorious reality of God's eternal purpose throughout the Scriptures in many verses. Acts 13.48 Colossians 1.22, Ephesians 1.4, Ephesians 3.11, 2 Timothy 1.9, 1 Corinthians 2.7, Daniel 4.34 and 35, Job 42.2, Psalm 33.10-11, Psalm 148.5-6, Isaiah 46.8 and 10, and the list goes on and on. All of these passages can be summarized simply like this. God has an eternal perfect plan for the ages, and no one and nothing can ever stop it. No president, 
we may have, no problem we may face, no issue that may haunt us will ever be able to stop God's eternal plan for your life if you are a believer. Dear loved ones, that is why, right there, what I just gave you, that is why nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because we are rooted and grounded and guarded by God's eternal, unconditional, unstoppable, exhaustive decree. That's what it's all about. And you ask, what is that decree? Well, I'm glad you asked. It is massive. As a matter of fact, it's actually far beyond full comprehension for finite beings like us. Remember, God has not told us everything but he has told us everything we need to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And here's the amazing thing about this eternal cosmic plan of God. It is personal and intimate for every one of his believing children. For as the passage continues, it gives us details and direction of the purpose, and you see it. His eternal plan, above all things, is to make every one of His disciples like Christ. Not a general mass of people, but every single individual. He will come and shepherd you, love you, hold you. John 10, right? He holds you in His hand as the good shepherd, and His hand is in the Father's hand. Psalm 23, he is the good shepherd that leads us by still waters, that brings us into green pastures. Even when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because our God has a general plan for all people? No, he has a specific plan for me, and he will not even let death itself separate me from that plan. That's why nothing can separate us from the love of God, because that love is driven by an eternal decree that can never stop, and that no one can stop. What help, what hope, what a promise. I think 1 John 3, 1 to 3 drives this point. And the encouraging response that we should have when we grow in our understanding of this promise. Listen to 1 John 3, 1 to 3, and I quote, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, there it is, see it? We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Here's the response. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. What is the purpose of the promise? To provoke our ongoing perseverance in the faith and pursuit of Christ-centered purity. This is what this is about. You've seen the clarity of the promise. You've seen the recipients of the promise. You've seen the scope of the promise. You've seen the certainty of the, of the promise. What is your response to the promise? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking of this one verse, said, and I quote, We are considering here one of the most remarkable statements that even this apostle ever made. It is one of the most comforting statements in the whole range of Scripture. 
we are surely entitled to say that in respect of this statement of exalted doctrine, there is really nothing higher than this, unquote. That is so true and so encouraging. But here's the truth, dear loved ones. At this point, doesn't matter. You've heard it. Now what are you going to do with it? The problem with the modern church today is we, 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 we let our ears be tickled with the truth, but we never allow the Word to transform our hearts with the truth. The real work begins now, doesn't it? We all deal with confusing difficulties. Preached a funeral yesterday. On my drive here, I was on the phone with another dear sister whose husband just died. I will leave here and go right to her house, start planning another funeral. This is our life, right? It's a trail of tears. This is what we do. This is the reality. But this promise and the truth that drives it should change the way we respond to all that's around us. If not, you've simply heard the word and you haven't started living the word. James chapter 1. That's where we're at now in this sermon. Faithful sermon just keeps going, right, in our lives. We've heard it. Now the work begins. For me, I've preached it. Am I going to live it? For you, you've heard it. Are you going to obey it? There's nothing greater than this. It's hard, yes. Matter of fact, Christ said it's impossible. But he has blessed us with the sovereign grace of God. May we avail ourselves to it again and again and again. And may we live in light of what we know to be true about God, not what we think is true about everything else. Amen? Let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the blessing of Hope Bible Church. Father, we continue to praise you for your work of grace done here for so many years. And we thank you, Father, that your word is heralded in this place. We thank you that Christ is exalted as we sang already. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to allow this place to be a lighthouse of hope in the midst of this dark community. Oh, Father, we pray your blessings upon all of us. And we, we ask, Father, for your help now to not simply be hearers of the word, but doers also. We ask that your spirit would convict us where we need convicting, that your spirit would comfort us where we need comforting, and that you, Father, would provoke us to put this truth in action that we might rejoice always. And again, you command us to rejoice. Help us in the midst of our difficult days, in the midst of our confusing times, in the midst of the troubles we face, to live in the glory and truth of Christ. For you are worthy of that and so much more. Bless us now for the glory of your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.